0: Morning, Glory America. It's you, you. It is the last radio hour of the week, and that means it is time for a Hillsdale dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues. This week it is Dr. Arn. We've been doing these since January of 2013. There are 225 Hillsdale dialogues, all collected at hillsdale.edu or on SoundCloud. Most of them concern. Uh, works of Western civilization which endure. Some of them concern current events. A few of them sports. I'm angry with Dr. Arn because he janks the Indians as I left the Kirby Center in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday night. He came up to me on the curb, and no sooner had he engaged me in conversation than the Yankees went yard. So I think you bear the burden of another crushed season of Cleveland fans' hopes, Dr. Arn.
1: I respond that you're beginning, ending the week talking like a Steelers fan. (laughs) <laughs> Let me try a, something else. I was uh, a little sad about the Indians because uh, I, I'm, I'm on your side on this one, oddly enough, although I get so tired of you talking about Ohio. But, uh, but, you know, Cleveland is a tough city and a great city, and it's good to recover some glory, and so I was disappointed for them. Recover
0: is the word, and the quest goes on. Before we get to John Kelly's remarkable press conference yesterday or the president's executive orders on doing Obamacare and the Iran deal, which are remarkable, I have to ask you as a college president and as a father, there is a story in the New York Times Magazine this Sunday, which posted online today. Why are more American teenagers than ever suffering from severe anxiety? And the numbers are quite startling, whether it is hospitalization, anxiety disorder, suicide attempts, a doubling of hospital admissions for suicidal teenagers over the last 10 years. This age group is your life it is your business i don't know if you've read this yet or not but have you seen of which it speaks and what do you think is driving this
1: yeah i've seen it um, um we so we at hillsdale we have uh you know Hillsdale's is a pretty successful place um we have more counseling than we used to have and more need for it than we used to have uh, I wouldn't call it a crisis. It's something we watch and lo- a lot and try to help with. And, you know, in, and see, this is mostly just anecdotal because, uh, as I say, the, the college is, which is not such a huge college, and also it's, you know, almost everybody is very successful. So it's small numbers. But when we see it, we see it connected to trouble at home. Um, we see it to uh, grade anxiety. We, you know, a a huge effort at Hillsdale College is to take away grade anxiety. And if you get into Hillsdale College, you have an average of a 3.9 in high school. So they've always made A's. And we don't think that's good for a person. So we try to help with that. But then (laughs) sometimes they get shocked and they, you know, and it tears them up and they lose their self esteem. Well, if they got it by getting A's in a context where most everybody was getting them, that's not very sturdy self- self-esteem. So there's that going on. But, you know, uh, I, I, I also kids, um, you know, our kids are not rich. They're not from rich families. You know, I think 75% of them work while they're in college at something. But uh, on the other hand, kids are richer than they used to be. So don't talk about me and you, but my parents who grew up on farms in the Depression in Arkansas, right, they, they worked 14-hour days. And uh, school started at the beginning of August, and then it let out for six weeks for the harvest, and, and then school started back up again. You know, so they, they lived a life where they didn't have time to worry about much. They were just working all the time. Oh, yeah, you know, that, so that's absolutely
0: true. Uh, my mom was a uh, has told a story many times about depression era you didn 't get clothes right you didn 't buy dresses and my father started the day in the chicken coop because he was the youngest of three boys, and that was the worst job and it went to the youngest of the boys and so uh, there is that I-, I read in this article though jake who 's the star of the article on in a bad way. I worry if I fail a quiz, I'll get a bad grade in a class. I won't get into the college I want. I won't get a good job, and I'll be a total failure. It's college anxiety at the teenage level, Dr. R, and I think that is driving some of these oh, yeah. uh, stories. Well,
1: D- David Brooks wrote a insightful book. What was it called? It was after he wrote Bobo's in Paradise. He wrote uh, a book about college students. And I read, I confess, I only read one chapter of the book. And uh, he, here's another thing, and I, I should have mentioned this because I noticed it because he first showed me to look out for it. Kids start living in day planners when they're 14 years old and 12 years old, and they 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 get on their student activities, you know, because getting into college is hard. It's hard to get into Hillsdale College. And uh we don't do it quite the way other people do, but it's still very competitive. Uh, and so you've, you, you, you've got to make the grades. And, and that starts, you know, people say that, you know, one reads about people who live in New York, and this article you're talking about is in the New York Times, that they start pulling strings when their first kid is born getting kids into the right kindergarten. Right. And then kids are coached for that, right? And our kids at Hillsdale College, they kind of live like me. That is, you know, I've got a big list of things I've got to do every day and a schedule I've got to do them on, and they live like that. And we encourage them not to join to darn many things. Uh, but the, So there was a great story uh I don't know the president of George Washington University, and doubtless the one who said this is gone now, but whoever he was, he was quoted in a newspaper article, and I still laugh about it when I think about it. He's talking about college admissions, and he says the following, I don't know where you'd find a leper in this day and age, but they find him, and they read to him. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> 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 you know, there is a book by
0: Frank Bruni with whom I agree on almost nothing. Where you go is not who you'll be, an antidote to the college admissions mania. And it's very well written, and it is, I think, indispensable for parents embarking upon this and their students. But we talked last night, Dr. Arn, in a tele-town hall that we did from the Kirby Center about um, education reform and charter schools, the need for for parents to be involved and to get off of this track and to actually seek excellence. And you brought up that Socrates ran the first Academy named for the man who gave him the ground. Do you suppose that those students at that academy were trying to get into something else or just into the conversation?
1: Well, that and see, so that's a we know the answer to that. It was Plato, a Socrates student who founded that academy. But we we know from uh, Plato's Republic that it it starts out I mean everybody should read Plato's Republic, it's it's tremendous, it's drama too. It starts out with a contest for the souls of two young men, Glaucon and Adeimantus, between two old men, Thrasymachus and Socrates, and Thrasymachus is a sophist. He wants to teach them to be powerful. And that's exactly opposite to the point you're making, you know. Kids are into success today, right? And And that means mostly material success. And so Glaucon starts out with this powerful argument that justice is whatever the strongest person says it is. And, of course, the conclusion you draw is, get strong, and then whatever you do or want, you can call that justice. And Socrates destroys him. Now, what's interesting about this is that Glaucon and Adeimantus are Plato's brothers, and the younger brothers. And so The Republic, one of the greatest books ever written, begins with a contest for the soul of Plato's brothers. And Socrates teaches them that knowing the good, that what is good for you would be your interest. And so, you see, that means that the people who entered Plato's Academy had taken that step towards serious learning. And a conclusion to draw for parents, by the way, thinking about sending their kids to college is that you should actually make the judgment about two things that will hardly ever come up in the admissions process at most places, and one of those things is what will they study and learn what specifically and the second is, what is the good of that for them and everyone else? And you know having gone you through
0: this having gone through this three times, that's not what most parents do that's that's just not it's not what i did and as i assisted three students through this and successfully so but but nevertheless it's it's a combination of many things that you do probably uh design how do you help them achieve happiness right as opposed to goodness and and that's a very difficult thing, and now students are internalizing that. We have a minute, Dr. R., and then we'll come back to John Kelly. What's your advice to the students and the parents who are suffering from this anxiety?
1: Tell them. Uh, uh, my elder daughter, who wrote her doctoral thesis on Aristotle and now write, runs a charter school, used to say when she was a little girl, she'd kick her feet, sit on the bed and kick her feet, and say, why won't you let me to be happy? And I would say, you're too young to be happy. You first have to learn to be good. Tell them that (laughs) if they focus their souls on that, then they'll be aiming for something that is satisfying and they won't be frustrated.
0: You're too young to be happy. Aim on focusing. Aim to be good. Well said. We'll be back with Dr. Larry Arnn, one of the most amazing press conferences ever in the White House press room yesterday
2: by General John Kelly, the White House chief of staff. We'll break it down after this. Stay tuned. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly.
0: Welcome back, America. 2 Hewitt, joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale collected at hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations going back to 2013, January thereof at Hugh for hillsdale.com or on SoundCloud, Dr. Arn, John Kelly, General John Kelly, four-star Marine Corps general, Former Secretary of Homeland Security, now the White House Chief of Staff, gave an amazing press conference yesterday. Let me begin it uh, for you, and then let's comment on it for the rest of the hour. Cut number five.
3: Good afternoon. Great to be here. A couple of comments, I guess, and then open it up for Q&A. I would have to tell you that uh, coming into the job as as the Chief of Staff, uh, I had decided to not do too much with the press uh, until I got my feet on the ground and uh, figured out uh, uh, what base I was on on any given day. Prior to this, when I was at DHS, and certainly as a Marine uh, general officer, uh, interacted with the press a great deal. Um, but coming into this job, I really needed to get to get to know the lay of the land. I have done, I think, three off the records. Uh, the first one of which was, of course, violated. Uh, but uh, thank you for all of you that didn't violate the trust uh, from that uh, from the, those off the record uh, off the record uh, periods. Uh, I would just offer to you that uh, although I read it all the time uh, pretty consistently, I'm not quitting today. Uh, (laughs) I I don't believe, and I just talked to the president, I don't think I'm being fired today. Um, And uh, I'm not so frustrated in this job that uh, I'm thinking of leaving. I would tell you this is the hardest job I've ever had. Uh, this is, in my view, the most important job I ever had. Uh, I would offer, though, it is not the best job I ever had. best job I ever had, as I've said many times, is when I was an enlisted Marine Sergeant Infantryman. That was the best job I ever had. So uh, unless things change, I'm not um, quitting, I'm not getting fired, and uh, I don't think I'll fire anyone tomorrow.
0: Uh, Larry, Aaron, we could spend the entire show on that minute forty. What's your reaction to
1: that? Uh, well, you know what a great guy um, he. he uh, one of the things that I, I think that there's many vices with the press, and one of them is when they cover the executive branch, they they never managed anything, and so they always treat it like it's just these warring personalities. And anything successful in execution is not like that. But the second thing is nobody, not Donald Trump and not anybody else, ever gets elected president of the United States who's a shrinking violet. And so the idea that John Kelly is in a struggle to control the president, he's a soldier in the United States military. And in no military on earth is it better understood that soldiers are not supposed to do that. So the first thing he does is just make plain, he's a humble guy, he's trying to bring order to a very complex business that most people do and it never did before, and it looks to me like he's succeeding, but isn't all that wonderfully normal and straight, and really how it would have to be? And
0: not only have journalists not managed anything, I'm not certain that many of them are well-versed in the history. You and I were talking yesterday about the book by uh, Candace Miller, Destiny of the Republic, about James Garfield. At the 1880 convention, the Republican Party was split so badly between the so-called stalwarts and the so-called half-breeds that fistfights were common, uh, that, you know, Ulysses S. Grant was the candidate of one, uh, there were three candidates on the other side, Garfield emerges the consensus candidate. It, it makes today look
1: like tag. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, this, the things that are going on there in the, in the White House and in the Congress are very important things, and they're very divisive things. And so, a reasonable man, and John Kelly is such a man, he would look at all that and he'd be thinking, not, how do I get in my way? How do we become successful? And you know, you heard that thing about the sergeant? Well yes. people people you know, people should know, you know, i because 'cause I've been around the military a fair amount, I've never been in it. But um uh sergeants run the military. That is to say, they make it work and and officers if they're smart depend on them. And you know, a marine first sergeant, that's a you know, that's a very certain kind of human being and very capable. And, he, you know, he's a general now, but he remembers that fondly. Very fondly. And we'll come back and talk about the significance of that and his
0: other comments when we return to the Hillsdale Dialogue, all of them collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. All things Hillsdale, including your free subscription to the Speech Digest and Primus, available at Hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, American Sue Hewitt. Joined by Dr. Larry Arnn. President of Hillsdale College, we are talking about a press conference held at the White House yesterday by the White House Chief of Staff, retired United States Marine Corps, four-star General uh, John Kelly. Let me play the second cut for you, Dr. R, and we'll come back to it. Cut number six.
3: Are you frustrated? No, I'm not frustrated. This is really, really hard work uh, running the United States of America. I don't run it, uh, but I'm working for someone who is uh, dedicated to serve in the country in the way that he's talked about for a number of years, um, there are incredible uh, challenges—you know, economic challenges, healthcare challenges, all of that. Obviously, international challenges that have to be dealt with. I, I don't mean any criticism to Mr. Trump's predecessors, but there was an awful lot of things that were, in my view, kicked down the road um, that came, have come home the roost pretty much right now that have to be dealt with. Uh, This is hard, hard work, John. And uh, my only frustration, with all due respect to everyone in the room, is when I come to work in the morning and read about things I allegedly said or things that Mr. Trump allegedly said or uh, people who were going to be fired or whatever. And it's just not true. Um, That's my frustration. I mean no
0: disrespect to you all. He went on to say, Larry Arnn, quote, it is astounding to me how much is misreported. I will give you the benefit of the doubt that you are operating off of contacts, leaks, whatever you call them, but I would just offer to you the advice I'd say, maybe develop some better sources. Some person that works way down inside an office, or well, just develop some better sources. What do you think he's saying, Larry Arn? Uh
1: Well, so, you know, it turns out I know a bunch of people in the White House, and I'm we're talking, I'm in Washington, D.C. this morning, and I've been seeing, I've been, I've been there three times this week. And I'm, you know, these, I know some important people in the White House, but the ones I like are the ones are the young ones. And, you know, some of them have been in classes of mine. And I reported to 10 of them yesterday. I said, you know, a senior person here in Washington who's been covering the executive branch, and writing about it for 25 years, said the White House is in chaos. What do you think? And they looked at me blankly, right? And there, you know, it, uh, I don't know if people know, but the White House is not a very big place. It's not like the Capitol. That's a huge building, right? The White House is pretty small, and uh, and the number of people who work in there is a few thousand. But each office has got, you know, a dozen people in it or something, tends to be the case. And the quarters are close. Everybody hears everything. So that's not the impression they have. And as a matter of fact, yesterday, the theme I heard from a bunch of them is, we are having a fantastic two weeks right now, aren't we? And they've got stuff to point to, and they're proud of it. And there's been a lot of work going to it for a long time. And now it's rolling out, and so they have they they describe an atmosphere of success. Uh, they are all they are
0: correct in also reflecting that it is orderly and calm. Mick Mulvaney, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, was on Meet the Press uh, as I was this past Sunday. I didn't talk to him on the set, but Chuck Todd did, and he was emphatic that this these stories are just absurd. That it's an orderly process. However, the president's tweets. Give a different impression. But what he does is he tweets before he goes to work. And he tweets when he comes home from work. It's his hobby. In between, you don't see him tweeting. He's doing his his day planner, as you referred to in the first segment. And they're doing stuff. And this week... The EPA announced its rule, proposed rule, to roll back the Clean Power Plan. The president has destroyed the subsidies, which are unconstitutional, in violation of the Deficiency Act. And we have something to say about that. And he's withdrawing from the Iran deal. And people forget that that can only be done if they're not in compliance. And they're not in compliance, which means a terrorist state took us to the cleaners under President
1: Obama, Larry Arn, It's a very good week for freedom. Yeah, and think, see, so I'll, t- I'll tell you something else first about the, the week for freedom. But then, well, about the, first about the tweets. So, all of these people, like they M- Mulvaney, is a revolutionary budget director. He, he is, you know, he this two for one thing. You got to take out two. For- uh, regulations every time you put in one new one. That's that's just the tip of the iceberg. Next year, for the first time in the history of the United States of America, we're going to have a regulatory budget. How much do the regulations cost? And it's going to be measured, and next year it's going to be lower than this year, and the year after that lower again. That's never happened before. And Mick Mulvaney is very aware that he was put in that office by Donald Trump. And so, you know, maybe Trump's tweets are a bad idea, but it's easy for me to say, I didn't get elected president of the United States, and he did. And then he's put these people in place that are doing all this work. I heard yesterday from some really, no, three days ago, I heard from some really great people in the White House who have to do with this regulatory affair stuff, which I think is the most important thing going on in the government today. I can explain why. But, but he, they say that when, when they, they're, they're doing some wonderful things, according to my lights, to get the unrepresented part of the government under control. And they say that when they mention to the president what they're doing, he, he's impatient with them for not doing more. And they love that. See, so yeah, that's what's going. You know, inside. That's I can only tell you what I hear, and uh, uh, that's you know, what he, I hear too.
0: And but the yeah, media yeah. does not have. And what what Kelly was saying. Well, in fact, I'll play this part so you can hear what he's saying about sources. Cut number eight.
3: One of his frustrations is you, uh, all of you, um, not all of you, but m- many of you. As I say, when I started, when I first started talking. Yeah, I'm a I'm a reasonable guy, but when I read in the morning, I read the uh, well, I won't tell you what I read, but when I watch TV in the morning. It's just it is astounding to me how much is misrepro- misreported. I will I will give you the benefit of the doubt that you are operating off of contacts, leaks, whatever you call them. Um, but I, I would just offer to you the advice I'd say, uh, you know, maybe develop some better sources. Um, <laughs> Some person that works way down inside an office, or, or uh, well, just develop some better sources. The, the uh, Congress has been frustrating uh, to him. Uh, of course, um, um, our, our government is designed to be slow, and um, and it is. Um, his sense, I think, is as a man who is outside of the Washington uh, arena. Uh, a businessman, uh, much more of a man of action. Uh, his great, I would say, his great frustration is the process that he now finds himself, because in his view, uh, the solutions are obvious. You know, whether it's tax cuts and tax reform, uh, healthcare, uh, infrastructure programs, uh, strengthening our military. To him, these all seem like obvious things that need to be done to protect the American people, bring jobs back. These are all the things that he sees as vital to protect the American people, or to advance American uh, uh, economy and whatnot. And the process is so slow and so hard sometimes to deal with. So I think those two things. Dr.
0: Arn. Dr. Arne? Yes, hello. Yeah, you're on. What did you make of that?
1: Uh, oh, sorry. I thought, I, I thought that was somebody else. You. <laughs> Yeah, that's you know, it's it's a common sense thing. I mean, like I, you know, it, I I've been thinking because I you know, first of all I have a job. I run a college and I teach in it and uh, I'm here because it, we're doing some exciting things at the Kirby Center and we're working on them this week. And uh but you know, I go over there and see my kids and sometimes some important people in the government my kids are important too, but they're my kids. Anyway, they um They are producing a lot, and I am tempted to make a chart of what it was produced so far in the Trump administration versus others, because they're they're turning out a lot of stuff. And, of course, you don't really have to make your chart. Just go read uh, any big newspaper, and you will see, let's say read it for three days in a row, and you will see constant complaints that the Trump administration is disorganized and can't get anything done, and also that it is doing a bunch of terrible things. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. Yeah, John Podhoritz tweeted this morning about um, a comment made yesterday at a panel by the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, Dean Bacay. And Dean Bacay said he wants to be clear to the public that the paper's motivation is journalistically sound and not part of a vendetta, quote, I can't do that if I have 100 people working for the New York Times sending inappropriate tweets. The Times is going to have to come up with a tougher policy. And John Podhoritz concludes, isn't this a complete admission that many Times staffers do have an agenda? And Bekay wants to hide that fact. John is right. They do have an agenda. They do want to hide that fact because they are against what Trump is doing. They're against his temperament as well, but they are against what he is doing. Paris, the Iran deal, the Obamacare. He's against all three of those things, and all of those reporters are for all three of those things, wrongly but deeply.
1: They're, uh, yeah, and those are, you know, serious, complex things. And it looks to me like, you know, this. I, I mean, I think that what happened about health care yesterday, I was reading articles about this morning. I'm on Hugh Hewitt. I have to read the press a lot more. I used to. It, uh, it. I think it's impressive and far-reaching. And I also think, and I can tell you that, that important people in the White House who deal with stuff like this, you know, they understand that the things that they're doing won't last unless there is legislation for these things. And they are operating in a world where they are undoing executive orders with executive orders, or operating under congressional. Uh, actually under laws that permit them to act in this way but they know that they will that the next administration can undo all of this and so although they're enjoying making these dramatic steps they would love to see some laws passed and mr kelly just said general kelly just said what that, that point he said you know he's frustrated he'd like to see more come out of the congress well everybody is aren't they Uh, They are. And Mitch
0: McConnell, the leader of the majority, said yesterday that the blue slips are a tradition that will no longer be honored. Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, indicated that maybe he doesn't agree with Mr. Uh, McConnell. But that's one of those traditions which actually has no part of the Constitution, Dr. Arnn, that unnecessarily slows the government when the government ought to be working. Uh, And they are allowed to adopt their own rules, but that's not even a rule.
1: Yeah. So the blue slip, as people know, is a blue piece of paper that a member of the Senate has to return the Judiciary Committee before a judge, a judge nominated from his state can be considered. And that's a, that's a uh, practice that is, uh, that is some decades old, but often not honored during those decades. And the blue slip, of course, raises the larger and more important question of the filibuster. And one hopes and prays that they will do something like about that. And what that would do would be to return the filibuster to its original meaning, which is this. Uh, wait, after some...
2: the break, we'll come back to the filibuster's original meaning after the break. Right. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on. The support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly.
0: Welcome back, America. Dr. Learn is my guest. We were talking about President Trump's frustrations as evidenced by John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff, retired Marine Corps General yesterday at how slow the Senate moves. We went to break and Larry Arn was saying the answer to that is to return the filibuster to its original approach, not to a blocking mechanism, but to the Roman Senate's idea of a filibuster. Dr. Arn, you were about to explain.
1: Well, I refer you to uh, in primus, uh from Jan- February of this year, where Tom McClintock, your friend of mine, Hugh, uh, a congressman, wrote a beautiful article about that. He's worked on this for years. And what it says is that the filibuster is actually older than America, but it uh, it's only lately meant what it means today. What it was was a rule to guarantee that there would be a full opportunity for debate. And that meant that when there were members present who had something pertinent to say about the subject at hand, they could keep saying it. Uh, if it became repetitive or, or odious, then the speaker could rule. That debate was over. But the purpose of it was to make sure there got to be a full discussion. Well, the way it works today is you can stop all the business of the Senate just by saying that you're putting in a filibuster, and then they have this two-track system, because what, what that would do under the way the filibuster was in America, say, 40 years ago, is that until you took that off, the Senate couldn't talk about anything. But now what they say is, okay, then we can take up something else, and that means you have effectively tabled that thing forever. And that actually stops debate. So if we went back to the original meaning, the Senate is proud that it's a big talking body. That's what it should be. But also they deliberate, which we learn in our Aristotle, is always uh, the precursor to making a choice in order to make a choice. And so they should get to a choice. And all they'd have to do is just make the filibuster what it was 75 years ago. I want to
0: close with the last thing that John Kelly said at that press conference yesterday, talking about President Trump's tweets, cut number nine.
3: President Trump. Are the people in the front row like the most important people, or is it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, not no. Not no seriously, how do, you, how do you end up with <laughs> the we're the first in line, when <laughs> yeah. they start shooting. Okay.
2: General Kelly, thank you so much, <laughs> thanks for coming. Well, but General in the Corker, wake of this recent I've
3: talked to fight, to yeah. and do his tweets make your job more difficult, General Kelly? No. No. I mean, the job of the chief of staff is to, is to staff the president, uh, give him the best advice, or go get the best advice I can give him, help him uh, consume advice, Uh, help him work through the decision-making process uh, in an informed way. Uh, But that's my job, and uh, that's what I do. Larry Arnn,
0: he said earlier, it's the hardest job he's ever had, but it is far from the most dangerous job he ever had. And I don't know if you (laughs) cringed as I did when they returned to where the cannon fodder, because he's actually seen cannons. He's he's seen men fight and die. And and there has got to be a part of him Not amused, but bemused with the White House Press Corps.
1: Um, I'll tell you just a quick story about that. So I got in a taxi yesterday, and and the, the taxi driver suddenly pulled over to the side of the road, got out a card, and gave it to a guy who was homeless, and said, call that number, and you'll be off the street in two days. I thought that was really impressive. And the guy was, uh, he was a young man, and he was just full of spit and energy. And then I learned that he was a Marine First Sergeant, uh, now out of the Marine Corps, but working for be- veterans and homeless people. He took a call and then returned a call about a woman that he had befriended on the street. And he'd found her a place to live, and he couldn't reach her, and he'd, he was sending the cops to do what he called a welfare check see if she's okay so that guy right that's the spirit and of course that guy i learned has been shot at a lot and and so that's right you know we you know chaos in the white house they're doing a lot and you know i i go there sometimes but i also can tell everybody who's listening i don't know for sure exactly what's going on there it looks pretty active and energetic and even happy to me and even happy
0: Uh, and and i i believe as well that people are not judging this administration by any standard measure, largely because of the conduct of the president in public, so he brings it on himself, but the standard measure of a presidency is in two-year gulps and in regulations finalized, not in two-hour news cycles. Last minute to
1: you. Yeah, so last minute. I would say, first of all, the president of the United States. I don't know whether I like his tweets or not. I hardly ever read them. I only read about them in the press. But you can see why he does it, and you can see why they object. They want to be his only way to reach the people, right? And he's got, he's found a way to talk to them all the time. It's certainly one of the one of the reasons he got elected president.
0: And it's so one of the reasons
1: he crushed the NFL. He crushed the NFL. He crushed them, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful, right? Yeah. Spoiled babies, you know and they and he just took them down and you know they think they're America's darlings but remember another reason why he would be treated differently than others he is changing things like he said he would Dr. Larry Arnold of Hillsdale College, always a pleasure.
0: Follow all things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. All of these conversations dating to 2013 and Homer, available on SoundCloud and at for Hillsdale.com. Talk to you next week. Thank you, Adam and Dwayne and Ben. Thanks, all of you, for listening. Talk to you Monday and see you tomorrow morning on MSNBC at 8 a.m. Don't miss it.